0: There are worlds beyond worlds. Cold, hot, light, dark, watery, and earthen. They all share one basic need. A need for heroes. Elminster of Shadowdale. I look at the night sky and I think, there's got to be something out there worth stealing. Aliyah Macabuck, Halfling Incorporated. Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Everything you know about space is wrong. Infinite space, stars as flaming spheres of superheated plasma... Movement through space is a balance of scientific forces. Thrust providing acceleration and maneuverability. Scientific fact backing up natural phenomena. Life on other planets built along blocks of carbon or silicon elements. Forget all of that. It's wrong. You can get out of the atmosphere on the back of a dragon. Fly between planets through a breathable ocean of air. Sail the astral sea and visit the spheres that surround other inhabited worlds encounter roving mind flayers and beholders and far stranger creatures. Welcome to Spelljammer. It's a magical universe. Hey everybody. So Today's episode, if you haven't already guessed, is all about Spelljammer. Um, I want to mostly focus on Reviewing the new fifth edition D&D spell jammer stuff, uh, but I think to give it some proper context, we want to dip a little bit into the history of spell jammer, and then particularly talk about what what has and has not been carried forward from second edition into fifth edition. So, so we have not, believe it or not, there was no spell jammer for third or fourth edition D&D. Uh, there was a, I think, a couple of brief references to spell jamming in kind of kind of on the back half of fourth edition. Uh, I think in the DMG 2. But uh but it was never really developed in in any detail. There was just a reference to being able to to traverse the Astral Sea on a magical ship called the Spelljammer, I think is what it said something like that. So uh so yeah, this is the first time we've seen Spelljammer any official content since uh the, the early 90s. Um those two quotes I began the show with are are from the uh, one of the two books that came with the original Spelljammer spell set uh, uh, box set. That was from the Lore Book of the Void. Uh, the other book called the uh, the Concordance of Arcane Space. Um, that's where that that thing about everything you know space is wrong. I paraphrase there. I changed it a little bit to kind of fit the current paradigm of Spelljammer. So I was paraphrasing that. That wasn't a direct quote. It was. Altered a little bit, uh, but Spelljammer uh, was published in 1989 initially, and really fairly early on. I mean, I mean, the second edition D and D hit the shelves in like I think the spring of 1989, and the Spelljammer box set, the first one, was out in November of 1989. So this was this was in on the ground floor of second edition D and D. Jeff Grubb was the lead uh, lead designer. On, uh, on Spelljammer. Uh, if you're not familiar with Spelljammer, I mean, just Google Spelljammer and look at some of the artwork. Um, and you can see, partic- particularly the 2E artwork, um, uh, I think very evocative of the theme they're going for with this is that visually you're looking at um, maybe a little bit of Jules Verne, uh, a little bit of... Uh, I, you know, it's, it seems like a Terry Gilliam movie. He, if you were going to make a Spelljammer movie, T- Terry Gilliam would be a good, uh, <laughs> a good uh, it's probably, probably an ideal filmmaker to, to, to do this. Um, if you've ever seen the Disney movie Treasure Planet, I know that's a little more, uh, I don't think there's as much magic as it is just weird science, but, but that idea that the ships don't look like rocket ships or spaceships, they look like actual uh, ocean-going sailing ships from the age of sail or 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 thereabouts or or, or medieval times, uh, but they somehow are capable of of moving through space um, with with open decks and, and portholes and things like that. So uh so the, the visual image I think you'll get from, from looking at spelljammer images tells you a little more about I think the the mood and the theme they're going for in in spelljammer. Um it's based on a uh notions of the universe and cosmology and physics and, and uh, physical chemistry that predate kind of modern, um, scientific understanding. Um, so, uh, you know, sort of a Ptolemaic view of the, uh, the arrangement of, of the cosmos, um, and some ideas about, you know, how things, how things work physically, in, in you know, in, in, in the way the, The spheres, you know, it's all about the spheres. (laughs) So uh, those are kind of the inspirations for this. This is not meant to be space works like real space does in the real world. It's just that these, you know, people from a a roughly medieval mindset where everything is magical to them, they're just interpreting it differently. This is not um, science fiction. I think is another thing to to point out with Spelljammer is that it's not, uh, I think right now it'll be, really uh there'll be a lot of comparisons drawn to starfinder which is Paizo's you know sci-fi space opera um, version of, of pathfinder and this is not intended to be a a science fiction even a soft science fiction type of, of setting this is d d style fantasy uh, magical fantasy in space and it's it's the magic of of, of the d d Universe that allows ships to fly through space. It's not through technology. It's not through through bizarre or misunderstood science. It's it's actually magic, as it is understood and or as is presented in D anD. d And so, uh, and then the the nature of the universe is very different. I'll get into that in a second. So so, yeah. This is not a science fiction game. Uh, this is this is fantasy, and it's not science fantasy. It's fantasy high fantasy obviously because of the level of magic involved and, and all the types of fantastic creatures um, but it is the the magic of spell jamming that allows uh, a ship to leave the atmosphere and, and go up into space and and move through space and reach the astral seal and sail across the astral sea um, it' it's not yeah that, that's what it is so so don't don't comparing it to, to other science fiction is probably not what you want. This is a, so I think Spelljammer is kind of unique in that, that this really is fantasy in space, D and D in space and not space as we understand it, but arcane space as it was referred to uh, back in, in second edition. So what's the nature of arcane space? Well, here's where we sort of want to see what does it look like in fifth edition and maybe look at what's changed from second edition. So, so, Originally, in Spelljammer, every system was contained in a crystal crystallized sphere. Again, going back to some ancient Greek ideas of of the way the cosmos is, Um, and and each of these spheres is is, inside it as a void of space. Um, And there's a a star and and, or a sun, and there are planets and 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 heavenly bodies within the the sphere. that orbit and move around whatever's in the center. Now, this being D&D, you know, it may be a place where the planets orbit around a sun. It may be a place where a planet is in the middle and a sun and a moon and and other things orbit around it. It can vary from, from sphere to sphere, but you have these crystalline spheres. Uh, and then inside the sphere, when you're not on a planet or a large body, it's, it, it is space. It's called wild space. It's a void. Um, but these spheres bob in a, in a substance called the phlogiston, which goes back to some, again, some, some, some older concepts of, of, uh, of physical chemistry and what are the basic elements and things like that. Uh, but there's this big sea of the phlogiston, and these spheres bob in it and, 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 and float around in it. And there are, um, you know, there's one sphere for the Forgotten Realms called Realm Space. There's one sphere for the Dragonlance setting called Krin Space. Um, there's gray space where Greyhawk is set. And so the idea is that every world of DND exists in its crystal sphere and they're floating around in the phlogiston. and with a spell jamming vessel, you can fly around within a sphere or if you could find a an opening or a portal uh, in the, the wall of the sphere that you're in, you can get out into the phlogiston and sail around and visit other spheres. And that's the in, in the nutshell, in the, the notion of spelljammer. What they have done, and this is not a fifth edition thing. They they laid the foundation for this in the brief mention of spell jamming in, in fourth edition when they changed up sort of the cosmology. Is now you're not there, there's no more phlogiston. It's the astral sea. It's the astral plane itself. So the the this is these spheres kind of represent the prime material plane, and then and then the the astral sea lies right above it, and you can and they're kind of bobbing up and down into the astral sea. And now you leave the sphere and you you're sailing the astral sea, not the phlogiston. So we don't have to deal with this unique place in in, in the d and d cosmology with its own laws of physics and its own properties and things like that with the phlogiston. Now you can just reference what it's like to travel the astral sea, uh, as described in the Dungeon master's guide with a few additional rules provided here in Spelljammer for what it's like when you when you, you take your spell jamming vessel into the astral sea. Uh, they've also eliminated the idea of the crystal spheres so that now the uh these are just spaces uh centered around whatever the central body of the system is It'd be a star or a sun for the most part um and the idea is if you leave your your wild space system far enough you're, you're not going to enter deep space you're gonna you're gonna move into the astral sea so i don't know how they're going to explain i mean there's, to me there's a little logical inconsistency um, even for a fantasy setting of what well, if if the astral plane or the astral sea is one plane of existence and the material is, is another one why why do you why would there be no deep space between these spheres maybe they'll answer that at some point maybe that's just something that they don't think about it just enjoy the ride because we're here to have fun not not overthink things anyway or maybe it's up to you as a dm in your own campaign to posit to posit what that is maybe maybe deep space is just impossible even with the velocity that spell jamming vessels can get to make travel between systems any meaningful, but you can take a shortcut through the astral sea. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. Anyway. um, So that is basically what the spell jammer setting or the spell jammer concept is behind. And I say the setting or concept, I think in second edition, we got a little more of a setting. And in fifth edition, we're really just getting more of a. Here's kind of the way the astral sea works and, and, and it interacts with the multiverse and all the different campaign settings, and spell jamming as a way to travel around in that. Um, uh there is some implied setting things about the multiverse. I think I think the multiverse has become the setting for fifth edition versus, whatever the uh, implied nature of, of of the second edition spell jammer setting was. So. And, but it's not like you can't get the old spelljammer book and just change the the lore and the cosmology to fit the way it was way back in second edition, or uh you could do you could do it the way it's presented here for fifth edition, or you can make up something up on your own. You know, that's that's the prerogative of, of a dungeon master. Um you know, spelljammer did not make it that long in second edition. Um I think ninety-four was the last time there was any there were any published um, materials for the game so it, so it made it about five years I think it kind of got overshadowed by Planescape which has a similar idea of here's a way to go between worlds including the, the different worlds of, of, of d and uh by, by traversing the planes through portals and, and doorways and gates uh, and I think, I think um, Planescape had a little more of kind of a punk goth it was just it was just fitting better, I think, into into, into the, maybe the popular trends and in, in, in aesthetics of the time there in the the nineties when it came out. So uh, <clears throat> a lot a lot more people liked um, Planescape, I guess, better than they did Spelljammer. Otherwise, Spelljammer may have continued to receive support. Then again, that was that period where TSR was teetering on the on the brink before Wizards of the Coast snatched them up um, because of a long time of, of mismanagement and things like that. So uh, but that was the business end, not the, you know, of TSR. It's interesting to, if you, to read more about that. I won't get into that, but um, you know, you had a lot of creative people like Jeff Grubb, who was a designer on this great artists, great game designers, really creative, imaginative people, great ideas. Sometimes the materials were, were not well organized uh, or, or high quality because of the pressure to, put out product, put out product, put out product without play testing, play, play testing, without enough copy editing. And that was coming from the corporate owners. And that ultimately I think proved to be their downfall. Anyway, enough of that. Um. Okay. Let's talk about the actual 5E Spelljammer. Um product i've got this on a. I got it at, i got it uh last week um <clears throat> and it comes in. A, it's a boxed set so it comes uh in a pretty nice you know it's not it's not a well it's not a box set in the sense of like a you know a box with a lid i guess it's got this is more of a slip cover that you can put all the books in um but it is so the same you know sturdy cardstock with you know covered in in glossy paper. Uh, D&D, Spelljammer, D&D Spelljammer Adventures in Space. You can see pictures of it on the internet. Uh, and then it's got the images from the cover of the three books that are contained within. Um, the books are each 64 pages long, and I don't know if they how hard they work to ensure that every book had the same number of pages. So they're rather thin compared to uh, previous releases. Uh, like this, say for, for the book on Eberron or, or the or the, the book on Ravenloft. But the reason being is you now can separate the adventure from the monster manual from the general information, which I think moving forward may be I kinda like that. I kinda like the idea that you know you're gonna you're gonna use your three core rule books anytime you play DD, the the player's handbook, the DMG and the monster manual. And then here when we're giving you a new setting you know, you've got one book that contains any any special rules for how to make characters for the setting. You know, whether there are new races available or new uh, subclasses, new spells, new items, new feats, anything like that that would belong in um, in there. In you know that the players would need to know along with some information on unique mechanics or unique features about how you do things. In this case, for Spelljammer, it's it's how to manage a, a space going vessel. Uh, and then a little bit of setting information, and that's what you've got in the first book in this series, The Astral Adventurer's Guide, and I'll go into a little more detail in that. Then you've got this, um, second book is Boo's Astral Menagerie. This has, uh, unique monsters for the Spelljammer setting, uh, including some variants of kind of more f- monsters we've seen elsewhere, like the Yankee, um, so that, uh, uh, they're more specified to the setting. Uh, It's kind of cool. The Astral Adventurer's Guide has got a Nautiloid ship, which are the the ships used by the mind players. If you want to see a really cool depiction of a Nautiloid ship, go watch the trailer and the opening sequence for Baldur's Great Three, where it's animated and and, and ready for a computer game. And it shows, it features a a Nautiloid ship crashing down uh, onto Faerun uh, outside the city of Yartar, I believe is where it crashes. Um, and then I think the the whole plot of the uh, Baldur's Gate three is that you wake up having been released from stasis as it had been having been captive on a on the mind blayer's ship. Um, I don't know if it I haven't played through Baldur's Gate three. I don't know if it actually references Spelljammer directly or if it's just if you kind of know what you know, you see this <laughs> ship crash down from the sky, and you kind of know well that came that that thing that that thing has been uh, spell jamming at some point. Anyway. Boo's Astral Menagerie has got, the cover has got a radiant or dragon, also known as a solar drag dragon and riding upon it is Minsk. The the infamous famous heroic ranger from the original Baldur's Gate series. Uh, and perched on his shoulder is Boo, his miniature giant space hamster. A little more on that in, in a bit. And then the final, uh, final book is the adventure of the light of Zaryxis and this shows, uh, the elven prince, I can't remember what his name, he's an astral elf, who's, who's the prince of uh, the Xerixis system. Uh, uh, and it just shows him along with a, I don't know if he's, that's also supposed to be a solar dragon that he's kind of standing next to, I believe so. Um, depicts him there on the, on the cover. But uh, it's interesting, the light of Xerixis, and I'm not going to go into detail on the adventure because I don't want to spoil anything uh, but I do know from watching some of the the, the YouTube videos where they've interviewed Chris Perkins about the design of the the of Spelljammer in general, and particularly of this adventure. This one is this partially inspired by Flash Gordon, the idea that, that that you you're getting pulled into space to aid, um, you know, into a into a deal with a conflict on another world that you know you're there to sort of aid the princesses. the The princesses need and help. Against her, um, her uh, evil brother is the idea. Maybe a little bit of Star Wars and a little bit of uh, it even sounds almost kind of like the, uh, the the lead up to the Dark Phoenix saga in X Men. If you're familiar with the actual sway of the story, is not how they've portic- portrayed it in movies with the she- the conflict between a L- the kin and Lalandra of the Shi'ar. Anyway. There is, and, and, and speaking of that, because uh, you know this is inspired by Flashcore, there are some call-outs to some uh, sometimes campy and sometimes classic uh, science fiction stuff. Even though this is this is fantasy in space, there are some nods to um, science fiction, some of the classics in, in science fiction uh, movies and stuff like that. And I'll, as I encounter those, as I flip through this, I'll, I'll point them out if I notice anything. There's a, there's a couple I notice in particular. Anyway, let's start with the astral. Oh, before we start with the Astral Adventurer's Guide, it also comes with a with a DM screen. Uh, the DM screen pick, has a, just sort of a scene from uh, the astral plane that shows several of the creatures. There's some Kendoria, which are the giant space whales, and some other monsters kind of floating around in the in the uh, in the astral sea. You can see a some kind of asteroid or, or large rock with a wizard's tower on it off in the distance, and a couple of. Uh, a couple of astral travelers standing on another rock kind of peering out over the scene. You're kind of looking at you looking from behind and over their shoulders. Um, there's interestingly enough, a flump wearing a pirate hat. I think that's one of the most awesome things I've ever seen in my life. Um, <clears throat> so that's the, uh, ooh, a nice little silver embossed D and D stand is on, is on the, that anyway, it's got, um, on the inside, You've got some of the standard stuff you would expect for, you know, setting a DC, skills and associated abilities. <clears throat> but this has some really useful stuff for running Spelljammer. Uh, it's got the rules on weightlessness and suffocating. It's got um, a depiction, a small depiction of the astral plane and how you would see the how you can see the um, wild space systems float, floating around in the astral sea, along with astral dominions, dead gods. Um, and there's a picture of, uh, how air and gravity work around a spell jamming vessel or a large body in, in wild space. Uh, there's some random encounters for the astral sea for wild space, uh, for, for encountering other ships. So, you you know, roll, roll a D 100 and it gives you an example of what you might get. For example, um, you know, wild space encounters, one day, six murder comets uh a, a void scavenger a shipwreck that might still have treasure on board uh, for the astral sea you can run into kindori, which are the big space whales um a green slot uh, and remember in the astral sea you don't have to travel by ship you can just travel through the astral sea just floating and just just move around in the astral sea on your own um but it goes a lot faster if you're traveling by by spell jamming ship, uh, then there are ship encounters. For so, if you encounter a ship, what what kind of ship you might it is using the types of ships unique to Spelljammer. Uh, and it talks a little bit about their their crew. For example, uh, if you roll a seventeen, uh, the flying fish ship Horizon, captained by Thal Thalvad, who is a renegade mind flayer arcanist and crews but crewed by nine plasmoid warriors. It's got ship-to-ship starting distance and crashing rules for two objects crash into each other, whether that's two ships or a ship crashing into an asteroid or whatnot. Uh, and then there's uh, some tables of shipboard tasks that a captain might assign a crew member during downtime or long voyages. Quirks of a ship: uh, roll a d10, roll a one. A chatty but harmless spirit haunts the cargo hold. Seven. The ship's envelope has a salt air envelope has a salty, briny smell. Of ten. a creature seated in the ship's spell jamming helm hears faint spacefaring sh- shanties in, in its mind, except when the ship is under attack. I kind of mull through that. What it's saying is, if if you're at the spell jamming and flying the ship, you're going to hear spacefaring sea not sea shanties spacefaring shanties in the back of your mind. Um, random thing for what might be in a cargo, including mundane and expensive types of cargo. So one of the things I want to point out that I think was a, a f- maybe a flaw in the way they did this, although I'm overall happy with the way it's packaged and presented, and, and I would hope to see more. I think this is a good way, again, to present new new and expanded content, particularly when it's unique to a new kind of setting or, or type of adventure, to do a general guide for for creating characters and playing at the table, a monster's guide, and then uh, a short to, to mid-sized adventure and a a DMG, I'm sorry, a DMG, a DM screen that that is unique and, and presents stuff that's useful here. But I know a lot of people, they just want the standard DM screen. It's got the most useful information if they use the screen at all. So some people don't use the screen. And a lot of people who do use the screen want the, the standard screen because it's got a lot of the information you need to run d d regardless of the setting or the type of campaign. Uh, so it would be very easy for this to be cast aside, and it's got the, these random encounters, the shipboard tasks, the quirks of the ship, the cargo, those are nowhere in the uh, the book, and so I know some people have said they've been, I don't think that's what they're upset about, but some people have early reviews that they wish there was more content in the uh, Astral Adventurer's Guide about spell jamming books, and, and I'll talk a little more about that in a minute, but that's one of the things that could have been in there, and I don't know that would have added two pages and it was like, well, oh no, that'll make it 66 pages where the other two are 64. I don't know how that decision got made, but in the future, I I would really hate to see particularly stuff. That's really interesting, important, not be put in the source book because people may or may not actually use it, use the, the DM screen. Um, anyway, that that's kind of my only complaint about the general, uh, how this is organized and put together. So, uh, but that is the box set. These are, of course the you know it's got the otherwise are pretty typical quality for the five e books of the same, you know, kind of sort of uh, covers and and interior pages and five e style artwork. so but that is the box set or not the box set. the S- spelljammer, I, I don't know what you call it when it's not a actually a box set, but it's in the slipcase. it's a three volume set and a DM screen that fits in the slipcase. And I would, would would add as an afterthought on that, I also got it on D&D Beyond. And one thing, minor quibble with the way it's presented in D&D Beyond. In D&D Beyond, it's not presented as three volumes. It's presented as one volume, which functionally, it, it's just probably doesn't affect, like if I was going to run a campaign and use D&D Beyond, it's going to affect the players and how it works for them. It, what, it, what it does, though, it means is, when I'm looking through the index on Spelljammer for something, I've got to go through the index of all three books presented as one large index instead of, you know, when I'm looking at the Player's Handbook versus the Monster Manual and D&D Beyond, those are separate volumes that, you know, they're, they're linked, hyperlinked to one another. If there's cro- It's a cross, cross-reference, but you don't have to look through the menu or the, the index or the uh, table of contents for both of them at the same time. So I kind of wish that the way they had set it up in D&D Beyond even though it was purchased as one product would be that it actually enters into your digital library as three separate volumes and not not the adventure of the monster book and the in the the rule book all together. Anyway, again, minor quibble, but that is something that I hope they don't continue to do that and it would be nice if they would fix it at some point. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Astral Sea. Um one thing you'll want to reference for a 5e spell jammer is the write-up of the Astral Plane in the DMG. It's really short. It's maybe two pages, maybe just a hair over two pages long. Uh, so there's not a lot there, but it is enough to tell you a little bit about what the Astral Plane is. Um, it's the realm of thought and dream where visitors travel as disembodied souls and reach the outer plane. So it links the, the material planes to the outer planes, uh, but you can also go there physically through a plane shift spell or, as we'll see in, in Spelljammer now, you can just sail there on a spell jamming vessel, just get far enough out into space, and eventually you'll cross over into the Astral Sea. Uh, or you go there by astral projection. Uh, the Astral Sea is this big silvery void. Um, you don't age, you don't suffer from hunger or thirst, you don't really need to breathe. Um, That's why Githyanki, even though they're native to the Astral Plane, have to establish enclaves on the material world to have children and let them grow into adulthood. Uh, A traveler on the Astral Plane can move simply by thinking. Uh, Their walking speed and feet, for those purposes, although they're kind of floating along, really, is three times their intelligence score. So smarter creatures move faster just by an act of will. You also get a sense in the Astral Plane of inherent direction if you want to go somewhere or you know that there's an object on the astral plane that you would like to reach, you have an inherent sense of knowing where it is. If you're looking for someone on the astral plane, you can have an inherent sense of what direction they are from you. But you don't know the distance, so that might be a short jaunt, that might be thousands of miles, it might be longer than that. And if you're only going, uh, you know, 45, 50 feet... <laughs> every few seconds that could be a pretty long journey even though you're not aging and you're not suffering time doesn't work the same way on the astral sea that's a long boring trip you still kind of have that sense of the passage of time although i think people who spend a lot of time the implication who spend a lot of time on the astral sea time becomes a nebulous um insignificant concept but still there's a little bit of element of perception of linear time and so and if time is still whittling away on the material plane maybe you're on a Clock there, you need to get something done. Um, Spell jamming vessels become a much greater option for for traveling quickly around the astral plane or the astral sea, as as, you know, we'll come to call it, particularly in Spelljammer. Uh, Some of the features of the astral plane there there are these random color pools that uh, pop up. Um, of varying size and varying colors. Each color leads you to another one of the uh, planes of existence. Um, and So you can roll that randomly and determine when pools pop up and how big they are, so what'll fit through them. Uh, there are also psychic wind. It's not a physical wind. It's a storm of thought that batters travelers' minds uh, rather than their bodies. And so it can blow you off course and it can do some mental damage to you. So there's some random, some tables to figure about how how, how might, Far, it might knock you off course or spin you around and you get lost. Um, you can be stunned. Uh, you can be inflicted with sight, knocked unconscious. You can take psychic damage, or you could suffer from a short-term or long-term madness. So you get a chance to use some of the madness rules that are rarely used in D&D that you find as, as optional rules here in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, it suggests that planet travelers and refugees from other planes wander the astral plane. Uh, the most prominent are the Githyanki, the outcast race of reavers that sail. They're basically pirates and raiders. As they, they sail the astral and then go to the areas touched by the material to, to raid. Their city of Tunaroth floats through the astral plane on a chunk of rock that's actually the body of a dead god. Uh, Celestial fiends, mortar, and mortal, ex- Celestials, fiends, and mortal explorers often scour the astral plane for pools to be able to get to where they want to go. So the astral plane becomes a crossroads to everywhere else. Uh, we're talking about petrified bodies of dead gods. We're talking about Githyanki. Uh, so we're really starting to talk about Planescape. Planescape is coming for 5e in a year. As I mentioned before, Planescape sort of overtook, they kind of beat up Plane, uh, Spelljammer and took its stuff during the two years. I'll be interested to see with a little more purposeful design and planning how they link Planescape and um, Spelljammer together to create sort of a multiversal setting for DD. and uh, They talk about and they, they call adventures in, in the Spelljammer set here that we've got for, uh, they call the, the, referred to astral adventures and astral campaigns. So the Astral Plane is maybe the core setting we're talking about. Spelljammer is just one way of adventuring there as opposed to Spelljammer being a setting like Forgotten Realms is a setting or Ravenloft is a setting or something like that. Uh, but I like that they're going to kind of getting in to share some stuff, conceptual space with Planescape uh, and that those two things may be different aspects of the same larger setting. One of the things I think this does a really well um, for Dungeons & Dragons that will be a, a major fit for 5e and i think will work well is you can take this breadth of content so so Spelljammer has given us some new races that i'll go into in a minute um but it's it's given you think of all when you start adding all the supplements from from the different campaign settings and the different expansions to the core rules and all the ma- you know the magic the gathering planes tie-ins to D. you've got this broad number of choices of, of playable races and classes and the different archetypes and subclasses and different magic and and equipment and all these kinds of places you could go and ways you could do things that fits in a multiverse or, or a broad cosmic setting because all those things don't have to come from the same world and they all don't have to exist at once on the same world, right? They can, uh, they can meet up in space they can meet up in the astral sea. They can meet up at planet crossroads, um, or you could have wild space systems where there is a, a core world, but it's been received so much traffic from other places that it's become more engaged with all the playable races and people from all over the multiverse, and that, that's kind of the history there. But but they know, hey, we weren't we aren't we weren't all created and born on this planet. This got to be this way when we started interacting with all these other people who are out there spell jamming and exploring the planes. Uh, and then you can kind of let Greyhawk still just be Greyhawk, and you can let Dark Sun just still be Dark Sun, and you can let the Forgotten Realms just be the realms, uh, and so forth, and so forth, uh, and have all that big gonzo, everything is fair game. That can be either up in the astral sea or at a planter crossroads or at a system you homebrew that is designed to be interconnected with everything that exists in D and D. And so um, I, th- I think that allows people who maybe want to play a little more of a more narrow focused old style setting. You can just kind of have one and uh, it can be as connected or disconnected as you want from all the big stuff going off, going on in a, in a multiversal type of campaign. Um, anyway, so those are my thoughts on the astral sea, astral campaigns, the, the possibilities there. Uh, check out the DMG for for stuff on the astral uh, sea. It, 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 they do kind of reference it here, and the the players got. To, I think some people were expecting maybe a little more explicit discussion of the astral sea than we got. Um, uh, of course, this also means that your spell jamming vessel can be attacked by an astral dreadnought, which sounds tons of fun to me. Okay, now let's look at the book itself. The first of the book, The Astral Adventurer's Guide. This is probably the book you're going to use the most because it's got the options for how spelljamming vessels work and how to build spelljammer, unique spelljammer player characters. Um, chapter one, there's a there's a, there's a there are character options. Chapter two is astral adventuring, which is basically the use of spelljamming vessels. And chapter three is the Rock of Brawl, which is sort of a, can serve as a home base or a hub for a campaign. Um, let's talk though, I'm going to, before I'm going to kind of go out of order because I, I want to go first into the actual how spell jamming works. So I'm going I'm to flip over to chapter two. I'm not going to read the whole chapter word for word. I'm going to try to not to be boring and do anything. Uh, so first of all, as I mentioned before, you need to be familiar with the way the astral plane works. Uh, which you can find in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, we may get more of that when Planescape comes later. I don't know, but for now, you've got you've, you've got enough. I think. Again, I said that may be a place where people who aren't who are saying they wish they'd had more content that may be one of the things they're referencing. Um, but I think what they're probably referencing as having one and more content was the 2e ways of of building systems, wild space systems or crystal spheres, planetary systems, in th- operating and maintaining a ship had a lot of rules and here they're just very simple and very straightforward i was kind of shocked at the lack of detail i thought we would see some things from like ghosts of salt marsh revised and reprinted here in terms of commanding a ship the crew on a ship and operating a ship but i think i know why they left it out and it's always easier i think to have a very simple rule and let people add to it if they want more crunch than it is to build a complex system and try to trust people to strip stuff out of it without breaking something or having an unforeseen consequence. So I think that's maybe the criticisms this got as far as the lack of options. Um, but let's dive into this. <clears throat> uh, how does spell jamming work? Uh, spell jamming works by uh, the use of a spell jamming helmet, which is a an ornate chair. Well, it could be a simple chair, but it's some kind of chair. It attaches to a ship, it's, it's a magical item that requires um, it, it requires attunement by a spellcaster, and it generates the magic that allows ships to do what they do as far as spell jamming, traveling through space, um, or air, or water, um, different places. When, when cruising through space, and this would be either the Astral Sea or Wild Space, Uh, A spell jamming ship can travel 100 million miles in 24 hours. It's a really fast ship. At this speed, the spell jamming helm makes minor course corrections for space debris, small space-dwelling creatures, other things that might be in its direct path. Um, But whenever a ship approaches another large body, another body large enough to have its own gravity, and spell jamming ships have their own gravity, and I'll explain that in a minute, um, something's big enough to have its own air envelope and its own gravity. The, the, the objects slow down and pass at their normal speed. So the ship maybe stops from going 100 million miles over 24 hours, which I think is, I'm not going to calculate that. That's fast. Um, to slowing down to maybe five miles an hour. So, so you know, they, they're kind of hurtling through space and then they, they it just slows down. Um, the, the the gravity planes uh, the force of gravity between these two objects stop that propulsion um so that could also be a kendori which is a giant whale-like creature that that lives out in space um, an asteroid a planet another ship the exact exact distance is d- determined by the dm uh, there's a table you can use for that uh, the sensation of, of sitting in a spell jamming helm is like having a kind of a non, non-painful non sort of pins and needles, tingling sensation all over your body. Um, an experienced spelljammer can often sense immediately what caused the ship to slow down a few moments before it can actually be seen. So you know you stop, but you've got to look around in space to see what it was that slowed you down, and it may be, you know, a thousand feet away. Uh, but the the person who's operating the spell jamming helm has a maybe has a sense of what's what's happened and can can assess what's going on. Uh, there can be two spell jamming helms attached to the same ship, but only one can be used at a time. If if a second spellcaster tries to grab the unused spell jamming helm, they, they has to fight a duel with the other spell jamming. That's the person who's already spell jamming. If they make opposed Constitution checks. The uh, loser gains a d four d one d four levels of exhaustion,s and they lose their attunement to the helm. And they can't attune themselves to uh, reattune themselves to a spell jamming helm until they've uh, recovered from all their exhaustion. How the spell jamming helm works is interesting. So it's a, a wondrous item. It's of, of rare. It's, it's, ra- it's a rare wondrous item. It requires attunement by a spellcaster. Uh, Pardon me while I click open a web page because there's something I want to talk about while uh, while we're uh, talking about spell jamming helms. Anyway, uh, the spell jamming helm uh, is an ornate chair that's used to propel or maneuver the ship through space. They cost... There's a spell that lists in here that's create spell jamming helm. And it, you, you, if you have that spell and $5,000 worth of material components, you can create a spell jamming helm. Of course, there are spacefaring merchants that will sell you one, but they're going to have a significant markup. So if you can't make your own spell jamming helm or you can't find one, you just want to buy one, you're probably going to pay 7500 to 10000 gold pieces or more to some of these uh, inter, in, in, you know, inter, interplanetary or spacefaring merchants. Um, while you're attuned to the spell jamming helm, uh, you can, as, as I mentioned, you can go through space. Um, uh, you, can, you can move through space, air, or water up to the ship's speed. So every ship has, has a default speed. I think most of these in here are between like three to nine miles an hour. Um, so you could use a spell jammer if, if it's designed to be able to float in the water not any spell jamming vessel, but one that is designed to also function as a nautical vessel or even a submerged nautical vessel. Um, You can, you can use a spell jamming helm to again, send it through space, air or water up to the ship's speed. If it's designed to to travel through those medium, Um, if no other objects weighing a ton or more are within a mile of it, you can get it up to that speed of a million miles in 24 hours. You can just take off, you know, out of the atmosphere into space, out of out of wild space into the astral, and so forth, back and forth. Um, and then it has a feature called transfer attunement. You can use an action to touch a willing spellcaster and transfer the attunement immediately. So normally attuning takes about an hour because you have to do it over the course of a short rest. Um, this allows you to immediately transfer it to another willing spellcaster. Uh, I guess if if the spellcaster if you don't don't want to give up the chair, you can engage in a duel. If there's some, if you've got a second spell jamming helm, but uh, but as far as just you know, so so a, a crew that's on a long voyage may want to have two or three spellcasters on board that can rotate rotate as as, as, as piloting the ship. Um, there's also another magical item called a wild space Ori. This is a, a wondrous item, uncommon, and whenever you enter a wild space system. This device automatically tracks the position of all the suns, planets, moons, comets and other bodies so that you have a, a, a real time map of the wild space system you're in so you can use it to navigate around. That's that's pretty cool. There were much more devices in 2E. Uh, there were greater and lesser spell jamming helms that produced different rates of speed um, and some other devices you could use to, to other ways of propelling ships through space. And then those are a lot of things that are missing here. Um, as far as elemental engines and other kinds of engines that were used in spelljammer as an alternative to the spell jamming helm, as well as other kinds of things you could use to enhance or or that. So they're not in there. Something else that's missing um or not there. There is a spell jamming helm that has shown up prior previously in Five E. It's in one of the published big adventures. I don't want to spoil it. You may you can Google it yourself. I'm not going to spoil it to tell you where it is because you don't. You may not have played that adventure, and you might play that adventure and not uncover this particular part of the the dungeon. Um, but you could find a spell jamming helm. There were at the time this was published no other rules for spell jammer, but you could just slap it on a ship, and you know DM could create a spell jamming vessel, and it was pretty much almost the same as described here, uh, except except for the difference was uh, you, when you aren't doing that super fast travel, um, if you're just more in the, uh, you, know, low, you know, travel more at the slower rate of speed. Um, the speed is you, you propel them through air, space, water, other liquids at a maximum speed of miles per hour equal to your highest level unexpended spell slot. Not your highest possible spell slot, but your unexpended spell slot. So if you're a 5th level caster, you've got 3rd level slots. If you've expended them, you, then it'll go off your 2nd level slot. Highest level unexpected slot. If you haven't expended any, then, then it'll go, and it's its maximum speed of miles per hour equal to your highest, so 3 miles an hour through water. If you get up into air or space, it's it's 10 times that much. So if you're using a third level spot, you're going, slot, you're going 30 miles an hour once you're up into air or in space. okay. Um, provided you have at least one unexpended spell slot, you can steer it. So you have to have an unexpended spell slot to steer the vessel as well. So you got, should at least have a first level spell slot to steer. Uh, and and again, whenever you like, you can see what's happening as though you're standing on location. of the. This was also part of the current spell jamming. I forgot, to, I didn't read that off. This is in the current spell jammer helm was also in this this one that came previously in an adventure. Whenever you like, you can see what's happening on or around the vessel as though you were standing at a specific location of your choice aboard it. So the, as, as the spell jammer, you are aware you're not all seeing on the vessel, but you can project your awareness around to different points of the vessel and look and see what's happening on the vessel in the space next to the vessel. as so though you're standing on the deck of the vessel, looking up out to see what's out in space. Uh, so, you, so you can still kind of function as a, a mobile member of the crew, at least in that regard, as long as you're um, attuned and using the spell jamming helm. The reason I bring that up—that's not there—and I think that harkens back with your highest level spell slot. That, that was also the case in Second Edition, where your speed and your speed and your ability to kind of propel the vessel when you weren't going basically at warp speed at this big, huge speed out in open space, when you're down to kind of short-term travel, which you would want to be using when you're approaching another vessel, when you're navigating through say asteroids or around another vessel, when you get involved in space combat, that becomes important. The higher level spell slots you have available, the faster you can move. And i Really wish they'd have left that in there. And I may, when I run a Spelljammer campaign, put that back in there because that means that um, there's there's an advantage to have a, a, a higher level Spelljammer at the helm, right? So I'll have to think that through. There may be some drawbacks I'm not seeing. And I'm sure there'll be more evolving discussion on why why did they drop this from from Spelljammer um, com- you know, as we, we have more discussion between fans and players and DMs and the the design team and things like that. Maybe it'll become a little clearer why they dropped that out of the the rules. But as it stands, you just go off the ship's speed. I think probably what the problem is, um, you get into trouble when you're dealing with a bigger or a faster ship. If you're trying to get away, maybe you don't want to stand and fight. Maybe you want to run. Well, if it's faster than you and it's bigger, so it's got a more dominant gravity force of gravity, which I'll talk about in a second, it would be cool to think that, well, we've got a better spellcaster who's in the spell jamming, and they can still break away and and race off. So uh, that would be a reason to to keep that rule that they dropped, I think. Anyway, um, when a creature or object leaves a planet's atmosphere and enters wild space, an envelope of breathable air forms around it and lasts until the air is depleted. And the space for creatures is roughly the size of the space they occupy on a battle mat. So um, a smaller, medium creature, that's a five-foot cube, a large creature, it's a 10-foot cube, and so on and so on. Uh, and, and a creature can breathe for a minute before they deplete the the oxygen or the air in their, their air envelope. Um, and since that isn't very long, it becomes much more Useful to travel through wild space aboard a spell jammer that has a much larger air envelope that everybody on board can share because the ship itself doesn't breathe. Um, there's a note on fires in wild space because there's no air in wild space. Uh, non-magical fire can't exist in the vacuum of wild space. Uh, magical fire, such as that created by a fireball spell, doesn't burn in a, does burn in a vacuum but it can't ignite flammable things. Now it could on the deck of a ship because you've got an air, air envelope around it, um, but out in wild space when there's no air, uh, you know, just, just trying to burn objects or blast objects that don't have an air envelope. Uh, you, can, you can, the magic fire works as magic fire, but it won't ignite things and create ongoing flame. Uh, air envelopes of objects. Uh, an air envelope, of breathable air, forms around an object. Extends out from its surface in a distance equal to the longer dimensions of its form. So, you you measure the thing in three dimensions, whichever is its longest, with its its length, its width, or its height. It, the air envelope extends um, that 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 far from it. Um, I'm sorry. It, it forms an oval shape. Um, based on those dimensions. So, so an 180 foot ship is going to create a, you know, it's going to have the 180 feet before and behind, fore and aft. Uh, and then if you take the height of the vessel, then it's going to have that much, um, you know, above and below and the width of the vessel. I can't remember what you call the width of a vessel. Anyway, that much out to the sides. Uh, the air envelope around a spell jamming is typically ovoid shape. Um, the air quality is either fresh air, foul air, or deadly air. Fresh fresh air lasts 120 days as long as the ship uh, carries its normal crew. Uh, if you take on more people, it exhausts the air more quickly. Here's one of those things they don't give you. They don't give you any guidance on how to determine how to well, how, how how much quick more quickly is it depleted. Do we have any kind of? No. You can look that up in the old spelljammer stuff if you want, or you could probably logic it out on your own. Um, but that would have been nice to get get a rule there. Uh, if it's partially depleted, it becomes foul, becomes humid, and it smells bad. Creatures that breathe foul air become poisoned until they breathe fresh air again. Uh, it turns foul at 121 days and turns deadly after 120 days. So after 120, you've got fresh air for 120, you've got foul air for another 120, and then at 241 days, it's unbreathable and you start to suffocate. Uh, when two bodies overlap, the Air the, the air envelopes mix and the larger envelope takes on the property of the or the smaller envelope takes on the property of a larger envelope. So for example, a, a ship whose air is getting foul can dip into the atmosphere of a planet and refresh their pre, pre, just just like that it refreshes their their air envelope. If a small ship has good air but it runs into the proximity of a large ship with foul air, now it has foul air. And I can think of one nasty trap off the top of my head would be to have a ship manned of undead, where it's just deadly air. And they just poison everybody <laughs> on a smaller ship by by just sucking them into their air envelope. Um, and then every ship also has a gravity plane. And this is this is kind of the fun thing about Spelljammer. Um The reason everything pulls its own atmosphere in is because of the force of gravity. Um, In wild space and on the astral plane, gravity is an accommodating force in that the direction of its effort seems to be that which is most convenient. So for a planet, it just pulls everything towards the center. For a ship, it pulls everything towards the deck. Um, So if you're floating above the ship, you will just fall towards the deck. if you drop an object over the side of a ship, it'll fall perpendicularly until it lands on a surface. And when it's out to the side of the ship, it'll just bob up and down. What happens is, is you've got a bisecting plane that's through the middle of the ship and above the gravity plane is up. And then if you go to the bottom of the ship, up be, down becomes up. You eventually cross the gravity plane and, and up becomes down and down becomes up. So if you've got something bobbing off the side of a ship, it just bobs back and forth between those two you know, it crosses the plane and then it falls back the other direction and crosses the plane from the other side and rises up and falls again. And so uh, it, it bobs back and forth. Um, things will drift, though, do as they slowly start to drift to the outside of the, 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 the air envelope. And once it passes out of the air envelope and off the gravity plane, it'll just drift off into space. Um, overlapping gravity planes. When gravity planes intersect, such as when two ships pass close to each other, uh, the gravity planes of both ships main in effect until the two ships touch one another, as often happens when they collide or when they're doing a boarding, you know, one ship lands on another. If that happens, the gravity plane of the ship that has more hit points, not necessarily the larger one, overrides the gravity plane of the other, suppressing it as long as the ships remain in contact. And the first ship's definition of up becomes up for everybody um, so i can also think of a nasty trick if you've got a tough ship of uh running into another ship at, a, at an odd angle and forcing your definition of up and down on them which would cause all of their crew to fall down because <laughs> up becomes down so there's some probably there's some tactical stuff if you think about this that might be kind of fun um, and so that that's that's all they really give you. Then they give you some description. Let's wait a minute. Uh, spell jamming ships. So, so there's some uh, are some more information on spell jamming ships here. Um, there's a for ship to ship combat. There's a starting distance initiative. It just says to use group initiative, not even to use typical five e initiative, but to use group initiative, which is reference it references the Dungeon Master's Guide as a variant rule. Both sides roll a d twenty. And then everybody on each side of uh, you know sorts out how they act when when their side's turn comes up. Again, this is probably a place where people were expecting a little more crunch. Uh, maybe maybe to, to bring in something like that's used in the Ghost of Salt Marsh, where the ship has its own initiative count uh, that, that goes in, and then their actions specific to, to operating the ship that the crew engages in, while player characters have their own initiative and can kind of choose their actions and what they want to do and then delay or, or ready an action or whatever as they see fit. Um, I probably would do that. That's another thing that I would probably continue to do. And there's a lot of stuff in Goats of Salt, Salt Marsh about things that ship's officers or PCs can do while ships are engaged in ship-to-ship combat um, that would be interesting to, to bring in here. Uh, moving a ship or steering a ship, a spell jammer, can use the helm to move and steer the ship without expending their own actions or movement. On their turn, the spell jammer determines how far the ship moves up to its maximum speed and decides whether to approach another ship, put more distance between the two. On its turn, the ship can be turned and reoriented so that all the weapons can aim and fire at any target within range, regardless of whether they're, where they're situated on the deck. So you've got catapults and ballista and trebuchet that you can put on the decks of these various ships and the, the pilot can tilt the ship and orient it so that they can all fire at their targets and it doesn't use their, their own actions or movements. So they could still do other stuff. Although if you're sitting in a spell jamming helm, I'm not sure what else you could possibly do. Um, I, I tend to think of the helm as being located in a cabin or below decks, not out on the open. Um, But I guess theoretically, if you don't have to stay seated in the chair, you could, um, you don't lose your attunement for getting out of the chair. So maybe, maybe, maybe you can uh, come out and participate in a battle by casting your own spells and taking your other actions while still mentally controlling the ship. Interesting. Uh, When one ship moves within five feet of each other, they can do a boarding um, enabling creatures to move safely from one ship's deck to the other ships until one of the ships pulls away. Ships that have enough movement can pull up, deploy a boarding party, and then move away, provided the members of the boarding party are ready. They took the ready action and are in position to to, to act when the ship gets there. There's some rules on crashing, what happens when, when, when ships crash into each other or onto uh, other. It mentions shipboard weapons. Um and the, the the weapons are described in the, the description of the ships, but you can also find them in the dungeon masters guide. It talks about how many crews have to to uh operate each one so they can they can operate each round. We get a list of ships. We got the bombard, which is just a giant cannon that's been turned into a ship made by GIF because GIF like to shoot things and they like explosions. Uh you've got the damselfly ship. Uh flying fish ship, these are all classic. The hammerhead ship, these are all classic lamprey ship from, uh, from 2E that has been updated. A living ship, which has a treant growing out of it. Uh, the mind flare nautiloid. The um, night spider, which are from the ship used by the Naogi. Uh, a scorpion ship, which can also land and move around on the surface. Uh, the Shrike ship, the Space Galleon, which, looks, which can then land on, a, on an ocean or a sea on a planet and function as a, as a seagoing ship. Um, a squid ship, uh, which I think also can, can function as a seagoing vessel. Uh, the squid ship featured in, in a non-spell jamming form in uh, Storm King's Thunder. A uh, star moth. A turtle ship, which can become a submarine. The tyrant ship, which beholders use. Uh, wasp ship. So yeah, a lot of these are versions of the old 2E and it, they're described in terms of They have an armor class. It tells you what they're made of in case you need to know Properties of, of whether the hole is wood or metal or what it's made of how many hit points it has Its damage threshold. So you have to su- anyone any one attack has to succeed the damage threshold to, to deal any damage um, It's it's speed Like I said, most of these are somewhere between three and nine miles an hour. How many tons of cargo it can hold, the number of crew it it has, um, and the keel and beam. The keel, that's the length of the ship. The beam is the width of the ship. And how much they cost in gold pieces. So there's a lot lot of information there on ships. It also talks a little bit about, uh, a little more about the astral plane itself. It gives you a a diagram of of what the astral sea looks like with these wild space systems, uh, spread out along with astral domains and dead gods. Uh, the astral domains, uh, what those are, are, um, sometimes deities or other powerful celestials or, or, or fiends might create a dominion for themselves, which is just kind of a floating island in the astral sea, um, so, so a, a god might create that there, um, and have, have a dominion. They may not be in an outer plane. They might have a home in the astral plane, and they're aware when you you know whoever created that that astral dominion is aware when you arrive. They may not want you there, depending on your alignment or who you are or why you're there. Uh, these dead gods are. Uh, the petrified remains of uh, gods who have lost all their worshippers or who may have been slain by more powerful entities and now they just float around in the astral sea. And other creatures or spacefaring races might build cities or um, settlements on them or might mine them out and use them for resources. Uh, so you, um, there's a little bit of it does reflect a little bit of traveling by thought. And navigation on the astral sea from what you saw in the the dungeon masters guide it does mention that you know like realm space and uh, gray space and places like that for the campaign settings and that you could navigate there just because you would know what direction to go in inherently being on the astral sea and then they give you a little bit on astral fishing in a table of, of fishing so you can catch different types of Fish from the astral sea, and it tells you whether they're edible or not and how big they are. A couple of big ones you're actually going to have to fight once you reel them in, like a space eel or the gray scaver, which is kind of like a big shark. Um, a little bit on weightlessness. Uh, you will need the smothering rules from the player's handbook if someone gets cut off from a supply of air. Uh, in terms of magic, that you have the create spell jamming helm as a spell. Uh, there's also a spell called air bubble, a conjuration spell that lets you, conjurate, conjurate, lets you conjure an air bubble uh, that lasts for 24 hours. It allows you to breathe without your own other source of breathable air. Anyway, that is, um, that's the stuff on sort of the astral sea and the spell jamming ships. Okay, now let's take a brief look back at Chapter One of the Astral Adventurer's Guide, where we're looking more at character options. Uh, there are, particularly as you look uh, at the character options, if you when you start to look through the the of Monsters, and you know a little bit about the the uh, adventure that comes with uh, with the, with the set the um, Light of Zarexus. There's a lot of homage to things that have come before, uh, not only in terms of past spelljammer stuff, other other role playing stuff from TSR, uh, but but there's some some shout outs to some some classic uh, sci-fi movies. Um, again, we're not playing a sci-fi game, but you're in space with kind of the idea of different planets and interplanetary travel. So so some stuff makes its way in from, from, from some sci-fi games. I'll try to call it out where I see it. I'm sure there's much more in here that I have not yet noticed. Um, so we, we get two new backgrounds and this reflects the new design for backgrounds that is coming as part of the, the, the upgrade to the, the rules for, for, for one D and D. And I'll probably do a f- episode pretty, pretty soon about that as well. But what's changing is, uh, with backgrounds, primarily the, the big thing is instead of those narrative traits that they would give you that sometimes are really useful and sometimes are not, you know, like an acolyte can always be housed in a temple of of their faith or the outlander never gets lost. Uh, you know, they, they know their way around once they're familiar with an area. And it's kind of like, well, how do you adjudicate that? Is it because some of those background traits are really super useful, like the outlander, one, and some of them. Or things that never come up, um, or maybe depending on what kind of campaign you're in. What they've done here is they've they've gotten rid of those, and you get a feat instead. And it's not any feats you want. There's a subscribed list of feats. And again, I'm I'm kind of pre previewing ahead to the to the one D and D playtest stuff they released this week, but um, or last week, excuse me. But there's some of the the more Mundane, straightforward, simple feats that don't make you super powerful. It's none of the feats that grant you an ability bonus, but they are the ones that make you a little more flexible and give a little more flavor to your character. Um, and so you've got two here the Astral Drifter and the Wild Spacer. So, one, of you might guess, the Astral Drifter is someone who's spent a lot of time, their background in uh, the Astral Sea, and the Wild Spacer is someone who has sort of grown up and been raised in Wild Space. Uh, the astral drifter. The idea is that you've been out in the astral sea for a long time, maybe by wanderlust or you got lost, and so roll twenty d six. You are that much longer than you older than you appear. You don't suffer the effects of that aging because you've been on the astral sea, but but you're really that much older. Twenty d six. So from anywhere from twenty to one hundred and. 20 to 120 years hmm, older than, than you look, you would normally be. Um, You get insight in religion and you can choose two languages. They recommend Celestial and Gith, Celestial and Gith, given that you've been out on the astral and uh, your feature is you, you have a, the uh, magic initiate feat for the cleric. So you would be, choose a, a cantrip and a spell from the cleric spell list because you've been out on the astral sea, uh, in close contact to the outer planes. Uh, and then you can roll on a divine contact and it'll, it'll, if you want, it'll tell you which God you've, you've come to know. And they've got a good cross section of some of the default, uh, gods, of you know, Coral and the God, who's the God of art and magic who's chief among elven gods, but they've got Greyhawk and, and, uh, Forgotten Realms gods, they've got uh, Nuada, who's, who's a, uh, not, not part of one of the fictional pantheons. He's from a. Who is Nuada from? Is he a Celtic god? Uh, Hakate, the god of magic and moons. Uh, Ta, the Egyptian god of secrets, who they don't really talk much about Ta here, but he features very prominently in the lore of Tui Spelljammer. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I really. He's, he's a favorite character of mine. Uh, both mythologically and the way they've used him in D&D in, in ages past. But uh, that's that's the astral drifter. The wild spacer is more that you've grown up in wild space, uh, home to asteroid miners, moon farmers, and other hardy folk. So you get athletics and survival. You're proficient in navigators' tools and space vehicles. And uh, you're, uh, you get the tough feet. Uh, you also get to roll if you'd like for a close encounter. You had a herring encounter with one of Wild Space's many terrors Roll a ten-sided die. Uh, a Beholder. A Cosmic Horror. A Fair. A Lunar Dragon. A Mind Flayer. Nathoglu. nyogi Space Clown. Vampirate. The Void Scavenger. Um, so those are, uh, you know, some of those may not sound familiar because they're new to this. They'll, they'll be in the, the Monsters Menagerie. And I, well, I might be going to of some of those things in, in a little bit. I'm not going to go through the entire Menagerie, but I pick some of the more interesting or, or, or amusing <laughs> monsters that are in there. Um, and then they, they give you six new races. Um, these are, and, then, and they, they, they don't re-describe the Githyanki, because you get Githyanki and Wardenkind's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, and they've been a playable race in 5e for a while now, but it does note that Githyanki are particularly appropriate for adventures on the astral plane or in wild space. Although again, as I mentioned, really when you're talking about, you know, the sky is the limit, no pun intended of, you know, Spelljammer just begs to just everything. You can have, you can have everything because it's, it reaches all corners of the D multiverse. But if you want to sp- stick with the theme of kind of what's been unique to Spelljammer and define Spelljammer, uh, particularly when you talk about this, it's really spell, spell jammer plus planescape, because we're in the astral sea. Uh, Githyanki are, are certainly appropriate uh, for this uh, for, for this setting as a, as a player character. So, what else do we have? What are these six new races? Well, you've got the astral elf. The idea here is that as the elves uh, sp- left the Feywild and spread out across the multiverse. You know, a lot of them wound up in the, the various ma- worlds on the material plane, but astral elves chose to go live on the astral plane to be somewhat closer to the gods of the elves. And so they've got a little a little sliver of, of, of divinity and, and and of the astral and the outer planes within them. Uh, they are, like, like all elves, you've got the keen senses. Uh, you don't need to sleep. You're, you're, you have a fey ancestry. So you, you're, you know, resistant to charm. You have dark vision. Um, like the high elf, they get a cantrip. They get to choose from among three dancing lights, light or sacred flame. You get to pick which one it's, again, those are kind of reflective of, of life or, or an origin in the astral sea. And also during their trance, you know, elves don't sleep. They go into a trance and just kind of, just kind of, um, uh, just conserve energy. They're 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 more in kind of a kind of a waking meditative state, but all elves do that. And but with the astral elf, they can swap out one skill proficiency for another one, where the idea is that because they live and are are a part of and are so connected to the astral plane, which is the the plane of thought and and imagination and dreams, they're able to kind of collect you know connect to this sort of collective unconscious. Of the of the astral sea and swap out one skill proficiency for another. I really like the design. Oh, and their their starlight step—it's kind of like misty step. They they magically teleport up to thirty f- feet away. Um, you know, I was kind of when the when the playtest came out, I kind of was like, do we really need another type of elf? You know, really, can we not just use high elves or iladrin or something like that? I actually think this is a better iladrin than the iladrin that we got. We got—I guess the iladrin they re- they reimagined is. Sort of, cha- you, know, you know, members of the Fae Courts and very much controlled by the cycle of seasons, and I, and uh, this is more like the the otherworldly, celestial, tinged, elf-like creature that that Illidrin used to be, uh, particularly in Fori. So um, I I think this is a better Illadrin or almost a better High Elf than the High Elf, uh, and and make a nice comparison to the, to the more down to earth Wood Elves. Anyway, but these they're pretty cool. Uh, the autonome is another one that I kind of scratched my head, and I know there's precedent for Autognomes. They, they were around in 2E Spelljammer, but I thought, you know, we have Warforged. Why do we not just use Warforged? They seem like, you know, I know they're from Eberron, but they also seem like a really cool, they just fit with the theme of Spelljammer. Um, but as I saw the way they developed the Autognome, uh, I, I really liked it, and I think it, it's actually interesting to pair it, to, would be interesting to pair them narratively with Warforged. Uh, The story of Warforged from Eberron is they're sort of mass produced as these living golems that are meant to be soldiers. So, so some of them have specialties, they get trained in specialties and they have different builds that they might get depending on what function they're supposed to serve, but they're still kind of produced in large numbers of, of identical units uh, and their individuality comes from their sentience. Um, And so, you know, the Warforged are forged to be one of many. And a journey of a Warforged character is how do you balance that origin and you completely break from it to become an individual, or do you try to recreate having a purpose among many with your companions and your friends? Um, with an Autonome, every Autonome is different. No two of them look alike. They're mechanical beings built by rock gnomes. Sometimes a malfunction or a unique circumstance. Causes the autognome to separate, get separated from its owner, and it strikes out on its own. Um, they always bear some resemblance to their creator, uh, but they can be made of different materials. And just Google autognome, and you'll see uh, different pictures of them. They look very different from from the types of materials they're made of and uh, their general shapes and, and things like that. Uh, so, so for when a gnome creates an autognome, it's not this mass-produced army of minions. It's a very it's, it's almost like Geppetto creating Pinocchio. It's you have a specific purpose and I have a specific thing for you in mind and I'm putting a, a part of my myself into you. Um, and so autonomes are very very individualized and idiosyncratic, but they also have a sense of purpose. They, they were designed for the purpose, whether they embrace that purpose or reject it and do something else. again, each character and that, that's up to the player. But autonomes, what do they get? They've got armored casing that gives them a natural armor class. Built for success, the number of times a day equal to their proficiency bonus, they can add a d4 to one attack ability or saving throw. Um, so just kind of a knack for success there. Uh, the mending spell can be cast on you and allow you to roll hit dice. Um, that used to be a feature of Warforged in 3rd edition. They, they, they removed it after 3rd edition where the where mending was, was used to heal Warforged. Um... It's nice to see a version of it make a a return here with the auto gnomes, Um, but they can still fully benefit from uh, cure cure wounds, healing word, things like that, just just like a a flesh and blood character would. Uh, Their mechanical nature gives them resistance to poison damage, immunity, to disease. They have advantage in saving throws against being paralyzed. They don't need to eat, drink, or breathe because they're a construct. Sentries rest, when you take a long rest, it's just six hours of motionless stay instead of sleeping, so you're inert, but you're conscious and aware of what's going on around you. And you get two specialized, uh, two proficiencies that should really reflect your specialized design for whatever purpose you were created for. So those are pretty cool. Again, there's a precedent here. The other one that there's a direct precedent for that comes right out of second edition are the GIF. GIF are large, broad-shouldered, hip Hippopotamus-like people, um, they—they've they, lost their homeworld. It's only a legend. They've lost their original gods, and they basically exist as fleets and crews of. Um, and, and this is not what's in the book. This is old lore, so this may or may not apply now. But used to, they—you know—they were always depicted as wearing very Age of Sail-type navy uniforms, and they all lived according to a, a lawful military structure. Aboard ship, and they form fleets, and and uh, you know that, that that's how they made their living as just uh, merchant marines and and mercenary navy and and things like that. And they love firearms and they love gunpowder. Their solution to everything is to blow stuff up, cause explosions, shoot at things. Um, so they're very interesting characters. They're they're pretty it's, they're pretty humorous, but can also be pretty deadly and dangerous, given how strong and powerful they are. Uh, for gift player characters, though. Uh here's a funny note. GIF, it's spelled G-I-F-F. And remember this is back in the nineties, pre-internet, pre you know, the, the age we live in. But they've kind of put this slipped this in here. Uh GIF are split into two camps concerning about how their name is pronounced. Half say it with a hard G and half with a soft G. Disagreements over the correct pronunciation often blossom them into hard feelings out arguments and headbutting contests. So <laughs> just like we argue over whether the uh Moving digital image is called a GIF or a GIF. Now the GIF also argue about whether they're GIFs or JIFs. Um, they have an astral spark. Their connection to the astral plane allows them to, uh, when they hit a target with a simpler martial weapon, they can take extra force damage equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, again, you get to do that a number of times a day, and then it has to reset on a long rest. They Firearms Mastery, they are uh Proficient with firearms, they ignore the loading property, and they don't have disadvantage when attacking at long range. So, they, they love their guns. Um, and so, even if you aren't going to um, use guns for other people, you may it like nobody else inherently knows how to use a gun. You'll have to spend some resources to learn how they're foreign to you. They are natural. They are, they are a part of gift culture and history. So... And they have a hippo build, which means they have uh, advantage on strength ability checks. And they're counted as a size larger. Uh, I'm thinking that a GIF barbarian might be pretty fearsome to behold. (laughs) Um, Or maybe a GIF monk, you know. Anyway, those are the GIF. Um, The next entry here, the Hadozi. This is interesting. This is a callback to Star Frontiers. Uh, and the uh, the yazirian race, you know, the, the, the yazirian race are these little, lightly furred, monkey-like creatures that have patagia, this membranes that stretch between their arms and legs so they can glide like a flying squirrel. Those were the yazirian The Hadozi, I thought, when I first saw them, I thought, oh, that's kind of a callback to the yazirian I think they've actually got a story that these are evolved yazirian here because it says they come from the planet Yazir. Uh, several hundred years ago, a wizard goes to Azir, and he starts experimenting on the Hadozi. He makes them larger and smarter, and they stand up. Uh, um, I guess the I guess the Azerians were already smart, right? Anyway, he starts experimenting on the Azirians. They don't call them Azirians. they just say these are the Hadozis, who are the um, natives there. But the, the they fed the captives experimental elixir, um, enlarged them, turned them into sapient. Bipedal beings. The elixir had the side effect of intensifying their. It says panic response, but I think they're meaning adrenal response because they have an ability to shrug off some uh, some damage, um, similar to a Goliath. Although they're not as big as a Goliath, they're still um, small to medium sized. Um, the wizard's plan was to create an entire army of enhanced dozy warriors, but his apprentices grew fond of the dozies, helped them escape, they overthrew the wizard, they went back to Yazir. And they administered the uh, the uh, elixir to all the other Hadozi, so that now that they've all evolved into this race of of uh, modern Hadozi, uh, I think that's really funny because that sound that, that has, it seems like it's a call out to Planet of the Apes. Um, then uh, we've got a. Uh, the, the as far as what they get, they're um, they're small to medium creatures. They have dexterous feet. They can use their feet to to interact with objects. They can't use them to wield weapons or or cast spells or anything like that. But they can use them to interact with objects. Um. They they can glide with these 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 flaps they have. Um, they can move up to five feet horizontally. For every one foot they descend, so if they jump off something high, I, there was an interesting YouTube video I saw where if you if you You know, this is all kind of abstract for the way we handle movement in D&D, that if you allowed this to actually play out at its logical conclusion, (laughs) dozy could break the sound barrier um, at that actual rate of of speed, going five feet horizontally for every foot of descent. Um, When you would take damage from a fall, you can use your reaction to reduce the fall's damage to zero because of their gliding and landing. Um... So those are the Hadozi. Again, a, sh- a shout out to the Yuzarian of, of Star Frontiers. We've got another reference to Star Frontiers here in the plasmoids. I think these are supposed to be like the derail sites um, from, from Star Frontiers. They're they're amorphous blobs. They can take on a humanoid form if they want. They don't have any internal organs other than Norv clusters. They eat, drink, and breathe through just sort of their porous uh, outer membranes. Um, they take a humanoid shape. That they can, of course, put on armor, wield weapons and tools like, like, a, like, a, like a humanoid would. But they can remain amorphous if they want to. They can squeeze uh, through space as narrow as an inch wide as long as they're not wearing or carrying anything. Uh, they have advantage to initiate and escape grapples. They can hold their breath for an hour. They're considered an ooze for um, game rule purposes. Say so they have dark vision, they're resistant to acid and poison. And they can shape themselves, like I mentioned, into a humanoid shape. They can also, alternatively, as a bonus action, they can extrude a pseudopod up to six inches wide and ten feet long. And kind of like the Hadozi's feet, it can inter- manipulate and interact w- with an object, but it can't be used actually to wield a weapon or a magical implement or cast a spell or anything like that. Uh, and then we have the Thrycreen. Again, um, there was, was an insectoid race of the brusque in, in uh, back in uh, star frontiers. but the Thrycreen themselves have an identity within D&D history for, for quite a long time. They go way back. Um, I don't know if they were ever specifically spelljammer related. They are strongly associated with dark Sun so we may be getting a little shadow foreshadowing of dark Sun between this and a couple of the monsters that show up in the uh, the, 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 the booze astral menagerie. Uh, but the the Thrycreen is considered a monstrosity for its creature type. It has a carapace that allows it to, uh, it's, it has a chameleon ability to blend in, so aid in stealth checks. Uh, dark vision, it's secondary arms, so it's got some normal-sized primary arms, some smaller secondary arms that kind of situated right below them, and they can use those to, to interact with objects. But unlike the other species we've talked about so far, they can wield light weapons. So they could wield a dagger or a short sword or, um, a, uh, you know, a hand crossbow that doesn't mean they get more attacks per round but that means when they do have multiple attacks they've got a lot more options to to bring to bring forth probably because they can wield a number of weapons it, i think it also means you could you know like they could have a long bow with their primary arms and have a short swords in each of their smaller arms they could have a uh, a hand crossbow and a small arm and use the other arm to to reload it while they've got hand weapons in their other hand so it gives them a little versatility with their with their choice of weapons and shields and things like that. Um, they don't sleep. cream don't speak aloud. They, you know, all they can do, they have these insect mouth mandibles, so they can make, you know, cackling and cracking, clacking, clicking sounds. And they can wave their antenna to to try and make gestures and sounds, but they can communicate telepathically with any being that has a language. They don't have to speak that thing's language. If, if it, a creature has a language, understands a language, it can understand the Thrycreen's telepathy, although I don't necessarily think the Thrycreen can understand if that person then speaks back to them or thinks back to them in their language. So um, use telepathy to convey your thoughts. You can transmit your thought to willing creatures that see you, can see you, and then have a language, but they can't send anything back. So probably have to take the telepathic feat, although that might be an interesting... Feet choice, if it's a, it winds up being allowed, as a, as a background feat. Um, okay, and so those are those are the race and background options. And again, everything out of the player's handbook, I would think a lot of the stuff that you get out of Guidance also yeah, full range of, of races, backgrounds, um, and things like that. So let's, uh, the, the last section of this is the Rock of Brawl. It's chapter three of the Astral Adventurer's Guide, um, and it just describes the Rock of Brawl as a, basically an asteroid. You can place it anywhere you want. Uh, they've released a starting adventure, introductory adventure to Spelljammer for free through d d Beyond, where the Rock of Brawl basically is considered one of the tiers of Saloon that fo- floats along the uh, behind the moon of, of Faerun. Um, but it describes the Rock of Brawl, you know, and the, the ruler of the Rock of Brawl comes from there, you know, it was settled by pirates to sort of become an actual legitimate trading hub, although there's still some rough and shady stuff going on with, with crime bosses and thieves guild, as well as legitimate trading and, you know, a wealthy part of town, a merchant part of town, a poor part of town near closer to the docks. It's got docks where, where space going vessels can can um, attach. The underside of Brawl is off limits to, to everybody. It's where the, the military keeps its its garrisons. And it's naval ships. It's also where they grow a lot of the food. And again, because of the way gravity works in Spelljammer, you've got the top part and the bottom part and uh, you just, you can just travel around to the bottom and stand on it. And now down is up and up is down. Uh, of course, it's got its own atmosphere because it's now got plants and water and stuff on it. It, it, it can, it maintains its own atmosphere. Um So they just give you some, some, some idea about kind of who's who Prince Andrew and his high court, uh, the underbarons, uh, which are crime Lords, um, the difference between the the high city and things you can get there. Like there's an observatory and a a library of maps, um, you know, the middle city that has a lot of other places, you know, interesting places to visit the low city and the docks. And then they give you, um, some of the enclaves that might exist there. And then there's, you can, you can pull out of it being a full poster size, two-sided uh, poster that is the map of Brawl with uh, the top side or, or the, you know, the town side on one side and the underside that shows a map of the military and agricultural region. So that's, that's the Astral Adventurer's Guide. And finally, let's let's take a real quick look at the uh, the monster book. This is called Boo's Astral Menagerie. This is a reference to the miniature giant space hamster Boo, who is the pet and sidekick of Minsk, who is a character that originated in the video game Baldur's Gate. Has kind of become an iconic D and D character. Um, and so let's look and see what we got in here. And I'll I'll I'm not going to go into every monster. Uh, again, you've got some uh, variants of of Familiar monsters like different types of Gidyanki, um, <clears throat> different types of Gif, Hadozis. Uh, Let's see. Uh, the Neogi are in here, uh, which are a nasty race of, of, of creepy, you know, kind of the kind of cross between spiders and eels. Um, solar dragons are, are, are radiant dragons, uh, they're also lunar dragons. They do not like each other, but they're, they're just sort of, um, some of the more interesting ones, I, I guess, here are the, um, let me just flip through the pages and see what's, you know, you've got some variants on the Astral Elf to use as NPCs, and I, I like the way they use Astral elves can either be heroes or villains, um, they're, uh, what does it say, their alignment, usually, any alignment. There's no prescribed alignment for them. So you can have different factions of astral elves from different systems that are good, neutral, evil. Um, cosmic horror. No two of these are supposed to look alike. Uh, again, a kind of a, a reference to Cthulhu. It says they come from the far realm and drift into the astral plane. Uh, the Dewar, small fey. Some resemble humanoid penguins that are uh, kind of a <laughs> merchant as a culture. Uh, let's see. Monger. What are some of the more interesting ones here? There's just some really creepy looking alien looking stuff that fits well. Gif, Githyanki, Hidozis, uh, probably some of the more are, are iconic, iconic ones of the Kindori. These giant whale-like creatures that, that live in the wild space. Uh, they can, an adult specimen can be up to 80 feet long. They get so big that you can build um, buildings and, and uh, structures on their back. And so some people will build, you know, a, a house on the back of a Kondori and just live there because they're big enough that they carry their own air envelope and produce their own gravity. Um, and they're pretty docile if you, if, if you don't attack them. Um, but, Pretty dangerous if if you do get into a fight with one. Uh, Lunar dragons, I mentioned lunar dragons or moon dragons, phase dragons. They can, they can, they have this ability to sort of partially phase out of physical form. Um, They're typically evil, although not always. And and of course, uh, it's got, of course, regional effects of, of a moon dragon. Just like we get in five E, we get the the wormling, the the young, the adult, and the the ancient, and then regional effects on their their layers, legendary actions, layer actions, things like that. Uh, here's one that's a, a legacy for, from Longstanding, and these are they used to be called the arcane. I'm not I'm not sure. I can't remember why they changed them. There's a reason for it, but they're, now they're called the mercane. M e c r a n e. I think they've they've blended the, the term merchant and the term arcane together. And this is this. Uh, they're, they're very tall, uh, blue skinned humanoids. They, they, they have advanced magic and technology and they, they will sell them. And uh, somehow they're all collected. They're not collected in a hive mind like mind flayers, but they all are connected somehow. And so if you you know, offend one mercane, you've offended them all. If you um, do a good job for one mercane, other mercane will know about it. And so they still are sort of have this kind of clannish like connection. Um uh, but they they're all they're found all over wherever there's spell jamming going on and they, they trade in spell jamming helms and other uh, magical uh, items and technology. They'll conduct business with anyone fairly and reliably, provided the other party is not harmed or swindled. Another Mercane in the past. Uh, the murder comet a murder comet happens when a spellcaster combines uh, an Earth elemental and an air elemental. Um, murder comet looks like a screaming stone head with wreathed in flame. Uh, that, I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, it also allows that the, uh, the the creator can transfer their consciousness into the murder comet and basically become immortal, and then the face is gonna look like the the person who created the murder comet. So yeah, it's just a big ball of uh, it's just a big ball of uh, earth and fire hurtling through space. Um, typically, they're evil. Uh, yeah, it's a comet that just zips around the universe, murdering people. <laughs> I mentioned the Niyogi; they have a long history in uh, in D and D. In fact, I think the Niyogi. Sorry for the pause here. I'm I can't remember exactly. I, did the Nogi start in Mistara. I don't, maybe they're not. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the Nogi are well-established creatures in D&D. Plasmoids we talked about. Um, here's another fun one, the Rigar. These are humanoids, but they're evolved from uh, cephalopods. So, but the, the the thing is, they they're they're bioluminescent. They have moths that float around them that help convey their moods and their their uh, state of mind. And uh, they're they're typically chaotic, neutral. And the idea behind the the regar is they they, they they appreciate art and beauty and, and excellence and everything. But they're they're kind of out to uh, create. Violence is a form of art. So so fighting and killing and destroying in a very creative and artful way is what, what they find the most beautiful. And so they're just they're not as evil, but they're extremely chaotic. Scavers are basically space sharks are several sizes of them. the solar dragon, uh, which are typically neutral, are probably the most powerful of the, the, the creatures in here, or the, at least of the dragons. They live in the hearts of stars. Uh. And again warmling young adult ancient space clowns uh, space clowns are in the inhabitants of a wide space system no clown known as clown space this is uh, Jeremy not Jeremy Crawford um, Chris Perkins has said this is a direct homage to the killer clowns from outer space another another old sci-fi movie um, cheesy sci-fi movie so, so that's that's how these guys worked their way here they they're, 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 they're uh, um their, in in their home world uh, they used to have worshiped. Okay, I'm gonna read this. Uh, wild space system known as Clown Space. The humans who once inhabited the system's three ring shaped worlds, <laughs> three ring shaped worlds, placed their faith in a god of revelry, and over time their ceremonies and festivals, yeah, they just became more brutal, and uh, they they ever increasing consumption of an elixir called Thrill Joy, and now they're spreading out. You know around uh around the cosmos wreaking havoc and killing people uh you got some other kinds of space eel space guppy uh space hamsters this is this is great so giant space hamsters these they have been a thing and remember within a year of second edition coming out they were a thing because they were a thing and originally in Spelljammer. so they're these large space ha- hamsters that can be used as pack animals and mounts and things like that um and then there's the miniature giant space hamster, uh, also known as a space hamster. And when when Boo and Minsk were introduced in the video game in Baldur's Gate, there were only giant space hamsters. And so the, the, the joke was, it's just a hamster that he keeps in his pocket. Um, That's all it is. But, but, but he's convinced it's, it's intelligent and he has conversations with it. And it's not a hamster. It's a miniature giant space hamster. So it's a hamster from space, but it's, well, those things are giant. Well, no, this is a miniature giant space. So that's kind of the joke. And the idea is right before you meet Minsk, he got zapped in the head with a lightning bolt. And so he's a little out of sorts and he never fully recovers his, his faculty. So he's a little addled. Um, and it's a very humorous part of the game is he'll, he'll talk to boo throughout the, uh, throughout the, throughout the, his adventures with the most famous uh, quote being when he gets into fight, you go for the eyes, boo. Um, Anyway, so what they've done with the miniature giant space hamsters here, or a space hamster, uh, the first space hamsters were, well, two funny things. They mentioned that the giant space hamsters, that gnomes have tried to develop a way for giant space hamsters to power their uh, spacefaring ships in giant wheels, so you'd have the hamster in a wheel, but it's not been successful. Gnomes have tried to build spell-jamming ships powered by giant space hamster wheels so far without success. <laughs> That's kind of funny. But here's the here's here's a funny bit too the the miniature giant space hamster or the space hamster some wizards shrank down a giant space hamsters to a wee size uh, leading them to refer to the, them as miniature giant space hamsters the magic also made them hamster smarter and telepathic so they can communicate with um telepathically with people and they have they're not super intelligent they have an intelligence of six that's that's you know still within the range of human intellect. and Of course, that's that's typical. There could be ones that are much smarter than that. Um, these benign rodents have found their world, way through worlds throughout the material plane where they're known simply as hamsters. So if you take it at face value, every hamster in D&D is secretly intelligent and telepathic, and they just sort of hide that from most other creatures because they're, they're still you know, they've only got like 10 hit points, and, and they're, they're not physically intimidating, although they can do this go-for-the-eyes attack, and it can be pretty devastating. Um, so the idea here is that all along, Minsk really wasn't that out of it. He does have a hamster that does communicate with him telepathically and gives him advice and suggestions, and when he says Boo, boo is the brains of the operation, he is the, the intelligent you know, member of the the operation. Um, What else have we got here? We've got the Sauron, which are lizard folk, and that is the term used to refer to the lizard folk in Dark Sun. Uh, so not only do you have this is a general entry the the two types you've got you've got a Sauron poisoner but you've got a Sauron defiler. And in the world of Dark Sun, there are two ways to practice magic. You either one that sort of restores nature and one that takes away from it. And that's part of why Dark Sun is a barren, a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Well, here you've got a, a Sauron which is is depicted as they're depicted as these sort of more longer-necked. Yellow scaled lizard folk from from uh, Athos, and you've got one practicing defiling magic again. Maybe we're getting a preview of things to come with Dark Sun. That would be nice. And then we've got three of three cream and then vi- vampires. They are walking, talking husks of the husks of dead pirates. So you can have an entire uh, pirate ship crewed by vampires, and they've got the, the typical vampire along with a captain and a mage that can be serve as the spell jammer for, for their ship. Um, so vampires in space. And there's a few other monsters I didn't go over in here, but that's the uh, Boo's Astral Menagerie. Uh, and I, th- I think they're, they're naming it for Boo because they explain exactly what a miniature giant space hamster is for the first time. Uh, that's everything. I, like I said, I'm not going to go into the, the adventure the light of is, other than to say in keeping with the theme of old sci-fi movies, I, again, I know, and, and Chris Perkins has said this, uh, directly that this is partially inspired by Flash Gordon and, and the, the cheesy, not not the old serial or the comic strip, but the, the cheesy seventies, seventies, early eighties. When, when did that movie come out? Um, you know, the, the queen did the soundtrack to it and, uh, Kind of become it, it didn't do well, but it's kind of become a cult classic, uh, anyway. But, uh, yeah, it is inspired a little bit by Flash by Flash Gordon, where you're, you're gone out into space, and uh, then, then there's a, a conflict between a, a princess and, and the evil ruler of her home world, and you get caught up in the, the conflict between the two of them. So, um, in those in this case, they're these 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 nobles are space or astral elves. So, but that's it for, for spell jam, this has been a very long episode, a lot longer than my typical episodes. I thought about breaking it up into two, but I wasn't really sure the best breaking point. So I'm just gonna put it out here. It may take you a couple, three rounds to get through the whole thing. But I, I if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. I sure appreciate it. And I will, as always be back with shorter, more typical episodes uh, coming up. So, Uh, I think I'm planning to do a follow-up episode with Carl Rodriguez where we're going to talk about our reactions. This is more of a deep dive into the materials, but we may talk a little more about our feelings and what we like and don't like and thoughts about how we might run Spelljammer campaigns moving forward. Um, And then um, at some point I will get in, I will talk a little bit about 1D&D and the future of Wizards of the Coast's a fifth edition which is no longer going to be fifth edition there's not going to be any edition it's just going to be D&D but I'll talk a little bit about that and uh, maybe in an upcoming episode because the, some of the design changes are already being reflected here in spelljammer as well as in the the more recent uh monsters of the multiverse that that, that they put out uh, a while back and I think as we see planescape next year and, and maybe other stuff going forward then I think we'll see the steam emerge of a big multiversal D&D that, that, um, again, not that you have to do it that way, but that it gives you a little more flexibility, a lot more options to pick and choose what you do and don't want in your games. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, and it's time to stop this episode, and it's time for me to quit talking. Wherever you are out there, thank you for listening. Uh, Take care of yourselves and be well, and I will be back later. Go for the ice, Boo! Go for the ice! Thanks for listening to the Arcane Alienist podcast. The music you're hearing is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. The cover art I use for the episodes is by Dave Bone. Be sure and check out his website, ironseer.com, for a lot of other great gaming-related content. You can always leave me a voice message through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website, or you can email me at arcane.alienist at gmail.com. Once again, I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much.